0: Good morning church, my name is Pastor Scott, super glad to be with you this morning, second week of our new series, Psalm 23, The Greatest Ever. Uh, Today we're keeping it pretty simple, we're going to do verse 1, the second part, I lack nothing. It's your sermon title, it's your outline, because I believe that God has a message for us all. Uh, Two weeks ago, if you've been here before, we finished a Philippians series, and when we concluded Philippians, we had this strong word from God about our contentment, coming not from our earthly provisions, but from our relationship with Christ. And in God's good timing, we get to give that message again today. I lack nothing because of who God is. Will you bow your heads and pray with me now? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the moments ahead to open the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you'd open our lives. You would reveal in our own story places where uh, we need to trust you more. Lord, where we can... Uh, look to the provision of today instead of the desires of tomorrow. Lord, we know that you're doing a work here even this morning, so we pray that your spirit would be present and that you'd bless these moments ahead. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Psalm 23, the greatest ever, your message titled today, I Lack Nothing, Lacking Nothing, Lacking Nothing. Uh, in December of 1997, I was a couple months into a road trip around America. Uh, I lived in a van, drove a white Westfalia camper van for six months around America. Lots of good stories came out of it. I told some of those stories before. Uh, but in December, I was looking for more meaning. I had, had you know lots of time to think on the trip. I was 22 years old, I was dating a girl back home, I wasn't certain what I was going to do when the trip was over, I wasn't certain about my relationship, I was asking all sorts of questions about meaning and purpose and calling, and decided on the advice of a mentor of mine that the best way to get out of my own head was to be involved in the lives of others. And so even though I was on this road trip, I stopped in Philadelphia, and I volunteered for a few days. First stop was actually in Camden, New Jersey, at one of T- Tony Campolo's organizations called Urban Promise, where we, uh, they have after-school programs for at-risk kids, and we just spent the day with kids and tutoring. And, and I saw the joy of all these people that were living in inner-city Camden serving the most marginalized in communities, and made, made an impact on me. And then they said, "Well, you have to go into you have to go into Philly. You have to meet Father Francis." And Father Francis ran the Franc- the Franciscan monks uh, a, a convent in, in inner city Philadelphia under the Kensington Line. And so the next day, I headed I headed under into Philly. Anyone been in downtown Philly under the Kensington Line? One of the worst areas of Philly. Uh, I got dropped off on, uh, from a family member on, on a corner and was walking around. It was the first time I'd ever been exposed to people smoking drugs, the worst kinds. And from the moment I walked down the street, this is Kensington Avenue, I, I, I was aware of a lack. I, I, I was aware of people uh, without jobs, people without hope, people without parents in some case. I saw storefronts you know, bombed out, looted out, and, and I, was, I was like... Okay, how, God, are you going to teach me about provision in a place of total absence of provision? And I spent a couple days in Philadelphia with these Franciscan monks. And and as some of you know, Franciscans are a branch of the Catholic Church that take three vows. To to poverty, chastity, and obedience. And here I'm, this 22-year-old man, hanging around all these monks, and it was incredible. Because these guys had nothing and all day long, we were just serving people in the soup kitchen, and we ran a clothing store, and I was, I was mostly just a bystander, not trying to get in their way. But in a place that had nothing, these men, these Franciscans, seemed to have everything. Like, for me, as a hungry 22-year-old, for purpose and meaning and direction, there was something inherently woven into the fabric of these men's lives that I said, I want more of that. And they said, well, you got to meet Francis... He'll spend time with you. He'll have tea with you, and you can ask him all these questions. I pause in the story to to make a segue into the text now, because today we go into Psalm 23, verse 1, the second part, I lack nothing, the, the NIV translates it. And and all Lent long, for the next 40 days, we're going to be slowly, word by word, going through Psalm 23. Lent is the season for slowing down. Lent is the season that the church slows down and prepares our hearts for, for Easter morning and the joy of new life in Christ. And so as we slow down in Psalm 23, my hope is that you all get a chance to slow down and ask questions about your journey with Christ. And today, we get the words of the text, the Lord is my shepherd, we taught last week, I lack nothing. Now, many of you have have kind of learned the other versions of this, like in the New American Standard version, it says, I shall not want. The message translates it, I don't need a thing. The New Living translates it, I have all I need. But as we're gonna unpack in the Hebrew, actually the best translation of the original words from David is this, is these two Hebrew words, haser, you have to kind of choke on it in Hebrew, haser, lacking, low, nothing. That actually, if you read the Hebrew, it just, all it says for these sections of words is lacking not. I lack nothing. I, I have what I need. And so the New American Standard, this I shall not want, kind of flows out of this promise of provision by God's presence and we can often hear this like i shall not want as some sort of guilt trip like you know we kind of hear it, you know as one of the commandments about i shall not covet i shall not want i shall not want i shall not. but the reality is for each and every one of us is we do want we do we do to take stock of what we want god to do next that's what makes us human we are aware of gaps in our in our society in our government in our world in our justice system in our hearts and so we come to texts like this and we say, I shall not want. And we're like, oh, I know, I shall, but, but I do. And so what do I do with that dissonance? What do I do with that tension between God's provision and my hunger for more in my life? Today, David says, we will find hope in the shepherd. And in unpacking these two Hebrew words, this low haser, this lacking nothing, David's saying, when I look at my life, I realize that God will provide. The intimate God who is guiding me and leading me in every situation, though I may lack for heat, I may lack for food, I may lack in relationship. These were all things that were biographically true in David's life. And yet when he looks at his life and he looks back in Psalm 23, he says, I see provision because at the moment of of my biggest needs, God was right there ready for me to to lean on. And so today we come under this big idea that in the presence of God, that truly, as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't need anything else. If we're drawing first and foremost on our relationship with Christ to fill the void of our hearts, instead of just stuff, And every one of us comes to our life and we we can think of all these things we want God to insert and this morning Jesus wants us to hear from him directly that he wants to be the one filling our hearts. And that we have to, as disciples, men and women trying to be more and more and more like Christ, we have to find our identity as people feeding on him, not just for the stuff that he may give us. So we're going to look slowly at these three words that come to us through the Hebrew text as we slowly teach through Psalm 23. Let's look at the first point of our outline, this lacking, lacking. In the the Hebrew, lacking means is actually, the the Hebrew word is haser. It's this like a choking, guttural haser. You kind of like spit it out as you say haser. It means lacking. And really, what the Hebrew says is nothing... Uh, Yahweh, guiding, song, David, lacking. Those are the Hebrew words that actually come through Psalm 23. David would have spoken this psalm, you know, 2,500 years ago. And the language was more restrictive then. And so when we pull out for, for, for English, we know it's David's psalm because it says it's a psalm of David. Nothing, the Yahweh, guide, psalm of David, lacking. There's no lacking David says from the beginning that as he's writing this psalm, he's probably looking back on challenges of his life. Whether it says when he's on the run from Saul in, the, in between being anointed and taking king or later in life, we, we kind of covered that last week. David's perspective is guided by the presence of God. His perspective as he writes this is saying, even in the midst of the driest drought, the springs of the Lord's love were always sufficient. And it's true often, right? Like if you ask people in this room that are Christ followers and say, well, tell me your story, we tell these stories oftentimes, not of the smoothest seas, but we often tell stories of kind of the roughest storms. And it's like, oh, when did you really know your faith is real? It's like, well, it's, you know, this time of divorce in my life. Or, or when somebody close to me died or was really sick. Because it was in those times of the most conflict and when when things were falling apart, I knew the presence of God could be counted on. And we all hunger for smooth seas. We all hunger for that testimony. Like, well, when did you know? You know, it's like, actually, my life has been perfect my entire life. That's how I knew that God loved me. That's not actually very consistent with our experiences. Now, our experience is is this, in this moments of haser in lacking, That if you can trust God, you know that God is present. And this is all informed. David, our author, it's all informed in David's call. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 6, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 16, if you have your Bibles. We'll pull up some verses too. But this, this calling on David is so informative for how he responds to the lacking he faces. We we would just say at the outset: anyone that was a shepherd as David was would know lacking. A shepherd lived outside with sheep, even in the desert, intense heat, intense cold, intense hunger, intense lack of water. This was the normative experience for a shepherd. So anyone that was a shepherd, like if we were all like, you know, at the shepherd bar hanging out, it's like, yeah, we get it. We all lack at times. And yet David says, when I look back on my life, I know that God provided. Because God called me, says David, even though I wasn't equipped. And this beautiful testimony comes out of 1 Samuel 16. I've taught on it before. It's such a core verse to even how I understand my my calling. And, And Samuel the priest goes to find a new king for Israel. If you remember some Bible history, Saul has been anointed the king, the first king. He was a head taller than anyone else in Israel. He, he looked the part. He was beautiful. Like you would have looked at him and said, man, that guy's lacking nothing. But the truth is in the scriptures, Saul lacked everything. He didn't know who he was. He didn't actually trust God. He felt ill-equipped. And instead of that creating more humility, it created more pride. And Saul started to act in ways that weren't consistent with God's best life. He started acting on the ways that only priests could act in ancient Israel. And so God tells Samuel the priest, go find a different king. And so this beautiful story comes out of 1 Samuel 16 where, where Samuel the, the priest goes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and says, I'm looking for one of your sons. And Jesse's got, he's got these sons, these seven sons and he lines him up, and, and, and certainly, Samuel is saying, well, it looks like if I just judge by what the outside sees, if I see this, the world sees, I'll, I'll look for the one that has no lacking. And one by one, Samuel kind of ran through, and God's like, nope, this isn't, this isn't the one. This isn't the one, this isn't the one, because God doesn't see like we see. God sees something different. God doesn't see even like this father sees. I mean, some of us in the room, we have like dad issues, because the way we were raised, and we might have wanted to write a different story with our own past. You read First Samuel 16 through a dad lens, and, and, Sam, and, and Jesse's got all of his boys there except for one out in the field. What's up with that? Like, why would he leave his son in the field? Samuel said, I want to see all your sons. And so look at First Samuel 16. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, who, who looked good, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed." But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Let's continue on. There's a next slide that's just going to flow right now. See how seamless that is? Like a well-oiled machine around here. Nick's Jesse summoned Shemiah. And Samuel said, "Neither's he the one. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? In ancient Israel, seven was a number of completion. So Samuel the priest is like, I guess I'm completely wrong. What's going on here? I see things the way that I think they should be. And God's saying, it's not like that. And so Jesse replied, they're still the youngest. But he's out in the field watching the sheep and the goats. He's not even here. Send for him, says Samuel. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, This is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of oil and brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. It's incredible. There's so much in this story that's just indicative of of like, how do we actually take our provision from God and not the world? How do we take our provision from Father God and not the fathers that raised us? For some of us in the room, we we need a restart in how we even see father. Because David's father didn't want him to be part of the party, And seven boys go, and and it's like one by one, it's not. and And then David comes in as number eight. David is number eight. He's number eight. Like, do you understand the significance of that? That seven men went before him, all that were more qualified in the eyes of the world. Seven men went before him that didn't lack anything. But David the shepherd came in in his field clothes. He didn't even really change for the moment. God says, I can use this young man. I can use number eight. This is just beautiful to me because the most interesting people that I have the privilege to be around, they have this number eight-ness about them. They have this air of humility about them. They have this surprise used by God about them because they're not judging themselves by their outward qualifications. They feel invited to a party. They feel like because who Jesus is, Jesus died while I was still a sinner. Because who Jesus says I am, though I am number eight in the eyes of the world, I'm, I'm the beloved one. This is our story. This is your story. You are number eight. Though you weren't qualified or, or pre-chosen by your outward beauty, Christ came for you while you were still a sinner and, and redeemed you. And that should unleash in you more joy and more hope and more provision. So when you start to count up the ways in which you're lacking, you can just remember, I am number eight. And that should breed in us more humility and authenticity and more of a hunger to just give God glory. I mean, This is, this is your story. This is, this is my story. Like, this is my story where I was... You know, I've, I've gone into it before, but I became a Christian at 18, went into the, you know, worked in, in Hollywood. I was a teacher in Los Angeles in the film business. God called me, come and be part of the church. Like, I, I attend church? Are you sure I'm qualified? And from the very beginning, God reminded me, I will surprise you with who I use for my glory. Like, that's, that's me, and I got bad news for you. Like, if this is your church, you're you have an unqualified pastor. Like, I'm sorry. This is our story. We own this together. That that, that we don't we don't show up at some you know ten million dollar facility. We don't we don't have some you know some pedigree pastor that's you know kind of written the book on this that or the other thing. And that's wonderful for anybody else. We are the people of the surprise. We are the people that God is writing a new narrative. And if we can carry that sense of gratitude and humility, we can change the world. Because when you own something authentically, people say, I want that. I don't want a religion that's been handed down. I want people that are hungry and humble and surprised by the majesty of God. Church, I just want to encourage you to just seize the surprise in your life seize this, this amazing narrative that God loves you even though you didn't have the outward qualifications and believe in this amazing surprise, you will be more grateful, more able to be odd. The Hebrew scholar Abraham Heschel has this amazing quote I want to share with you about seizing the surprise in our lives. Heschel writes this, Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. To love Jesus is to be amazed. Because we are number eight. Isn't that amazing? And may that air of humility and authenticity breed in all of us as we follow the king. We lack Nothing. Look at the second point of your outline. That in the ancient Hebrew, it's actually the first word of the narrative. It's this, this Hebrew word, low. It means nothing. Lacking nothing. We lack nothing as people following God. We're mindful of Psalm 3410. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. And we read that, and we, we struggle with that. I don't, do you struggle with that? And that's not consistent with people I know that are trusting in the Lord but do lack. A friend of mine called me this morning. He said, we might be losing the baby. Like, everywhere I go, I encounter people that lack. And how do we hold this intention that God promises we won't lack? And yet, in even trying to trust God, we're aware constantly of this gap. Is this just another kind of religious, you know, kind of like mantra that we will struggle to live into? It's not. David's saying, I know from my own experience that I've gone hungry, that I've been cold, that I've been persecuted. He knew that as a shepherd. But he's promising that in the life of faith we'll have a present tense lack but long-term contentment. And he just acknowledges, he said, this is a profound mystery that we will live in. That we will know small bank accounts, we will know relational loneliness, we will see relationships fall apart, we may be sick, we will lose people we love, and in the midst of that, God's saying, and still, I'll provide for you. And if you think the provision means you'll never go hungry, you're missing the narrative of the Bible. Paul warned about that in Philippians 4, 13, or 3:13 about those that their God is their stomach," Paul wrote. Because if you think that faith in Jesus flows out of full stomachs, friends, look around. The American church is, it was full, but man, we're empty. And right now, the gospel is, is growing like crazy in places that know their hunger. In, in Africa and in Asia, in places where they're, they're aware of what they lack, the church is growing by leaps and bounds. We live in a city that's never been more affluent. And yet, as I drove on I 5 yesterday through downtown, as people are living under underpasses, changing, in the, I have to explain to them the gap between the haves and have nots. Oh, we're not hungry? Man, we're starving for more meaning. We're starving. And, and, and this is what David's saying, is we understand the way in which our earthly provision won't actually fill the gaps in our hearts. This is the beginning of contentment in the Lord. This is the beginning of more faith and more trust. is isn't just for that new relationship or the new job or more money or you know, whatever plug and play we think will bring us contentment. David's saying, no, believe in such a way That no matter what you struggle through, you can believe in the person of Christ to feed you. Be free from this God of consumerism, this God of full stomachs that so many of us fall prey to at times. This isn't a guilt trip. Psalm 23 is not a guilt trip. It's an opportunity to say that when we face challenges, we have a God who will provide for us. There's this beautiful piece of scripture from Genesis 13 where Abram, soon to be Abraham, and Lot part ways. Now, if you don't think that in the life of faith you'll struggle, like the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, the first thing that happens is it says there's famine in the land. And this discrepancy between being called into fulfillment in God's story, but then yet struggling through famines and scarcity, it's Abram's story. But they go to Egypt... God provides from there, even though Abram does some ridiculous things, and they come back, and Abram and his nephew Lot, they need to separate. They actually have provision so much that the land is struggling to to fulfill their needs of their crops. So it's actually provision that's causing a bit of a problem. And so Abram says in in Genesis 13, I don't have a slide, you can turn in your Bibles, Genesis 13, I start in verse 8, Abram said to Lot, his nephew, there's not been quarreling between you and me, but now there is. Between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. The whole land's before you, but we're starting to fight. The land can't sustain us. And so Abram says, let's part company. Lot, my nephew, if you go left, I'll go right. And Lot, my nephew, if you go right, I'll go left. And so Lot, this young man, he looked with his eyes and he saw the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoer that was well watered. The grass was greener, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So, so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan, set out toward the east. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't choose the greener grass? The two men parted company, and Abram lived in the land of Canaan, in the land of hills and rocks and stones, while Lot lived down in the green grass in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tents near Sodom in a place called Gomorrah. That's a different story. Doesn't turn out so well for Lot down by Sodom and Gomorrah. But look what happens when Abram says, it's not the green grass I'm going to choose, it's contentment in the Lord. Listen what happens next. Then God spoke. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him to the greener grass, then God said to him, look around from where you are, Abram, to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. It's such a beautiful picture of us saying, it's not about the greener grass. It's about God providing for me in any season that I'm in. And if we think, like, God, first I'm going to walk through the land and you bless me, and then I'll learn this contentment thing, we're sunk, we're locked, we're looking to greener grass. Lot would be destroyed down in the valley, okay, by his own desires, but the faith that we cling to is that of Abram that, hey, if you go left, I go, God, I'm going to trust you, even though I want a different outcome here, I'm going to trust you, and from that place of contentment, God can bless him. Church, we need to stop complaining and stop comparing and trust that what God has given us today will sustain I heard Pastor Eugene down at Quest say this years ago, and I've never forgotten. He said, if the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, then water your own lawn. Like, right? And there's also, you can Google this. Like, if the grass is greener, they have more manure over there. You know, or their water bill is higher. Like, the point is, like, we only have the turf under our feet. It's all we have. It's all we have. Well, their journey's easier, and they have more, and that, and that, and that. Knock it off. You've been given this life today. And God is looking for men and women to believe in this contentment that what God has given me today is enough. And I will worship God when I'm hungry. And I will worship God when I'm full. And I will praise the name of Jesus when I'm relationally satisfied. And I will praise the name of Jesus when my heart is broken. Because my faith will not be defined by the stuff I've made that mistake too many times in my life. I'm leaving it behind. No, I will be defined by living the life that God has given me now. Or as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I'll help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We have all we need. We have the Lord as our shepherd. We have a guide for when we're hungry. We have provision. And so may this be our mantra, church. Like, this will become an actual thing that we're doing. We're going to memorize each week Psalm 23. So that when we hunger for something else, we will pray this as our prayer. So let's practice right now. Week two of our memory verse challenge. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And I don't know if you meditate very often, but friends, when I start to freak out, I I, I meditate on these words, and it centers me on the God of provision, not the absence of whatever it is that I'm hungering for. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I took my kids to a theme park this fall when we were in California, and an old employee of mine from the business world works at Knott's Berry Farm, greeted us at the gate, free passes all day. It's midweek in Southern California, And it's not that popular theme park, and nobody's there. So it's like unlimited rides, unlimited fun. It's incredible, like roller coasters, and we're laughing like maniacs, and the joy and the hope and the provision. But around the back corner, there's these carnival games, $5 to knock a clown off a thing and get a thing, you know, and my kids got sucked in. They got sucked in by the carnival games. We had an entire theme park at our disposal. And they said, can we play the kick a ball? And if it goes through, I get a you know, like a ridiculously cheap little stuffed animal. Sure, let's be the fun parents. Let's do that. Can we do it again? Um, okay, you guys are kind of freaking out. There's a theme park. Out. Uh, yeah, let's try it one more time. Can we do it again? I mean, it's like my kids. What happened to my kids? They became like Vegas gamblers or something. You know, it's like. They wanted that hit, that dopamine. They got, they got lured by the carnival games. And I literally like packed my then four-year-old almost out of the park, and I sit him down, and I said, you're missing the whole park focused on these tiny little carnival games. And it didn't actually work as well as I would have thought. Because <laughs> he's four, and he was having a temper tantrum, and I actually just looked like I was yelling at him. But the point is this. How often do we miss the whole experience? Because we're focused on one little thing we want God to do. We miss it. We miss the gift of life right under our feet. And I know some of you in this room. I know some of your stories. You've been through hard things. I'm not taking any of that for granted. I'm not. I hurt when you hurt. I struggle when you struggle. I mean, we've, we've got some real heartache even in this room right now. All I'm challenging us as a congregation is will we take this challenge? That the provision of God in his presence is is actually more meaningful when we're lacking. Hacer lo, lacking nothing. And then the final point is I. Like the translators are able to deduce that this is a psalm of David because he says so in Hebrew words. And so they just insert the English word I. It's important for us to insert the word I because the series has to be personal. And the biggest barrier to many of our contentment is, is me in my own heart. And so when I lack, the quickest way to contentment is, is tuning in to my hunger. And knowing what God can provide is, is way better than the thing that I'm sure that I would feel better if I had. You know, the new this or more of this or whatever. And so each and every day as a follower of God, I've got to take this challenge, lacking nothing I. Because how often... Do we find ourselves feeding on something else when we really could feed on Christ? It's food, it's alcohol, it's pornography, it's, it's drugs, it's something else. And all of it is trying to get to that hole in our hearts that only God, only God can satisfy. There's a, there's a misappropriated quote by Blaise Pascal about this God-shaped hole that each one of us had. It's a beautiful quote. He didn't actually say it. What Pascal said about our God-shaped hole is actually this. Pascal wrote hundreds of years ago. He said, what else does our craving and this helplessness proclaim that there was once in humanity a true happiness of which all that now remains is empty print and a trace? This humans try in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with the infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. And church, I want to give you this. I, I recognize this, this sounds too easy, but I want you to trust my heart that I'm not giving you anything other than what I'm challenging myself this week. That our hungers can actually bring us closer to Christ. And so as we tune in to what am I actually hungry for and then turn that to prayer to God, this is where my faith can grow. Our hungers, if we, if we manage them and bring Jesus into them, they can bring us closer to Christ. Christ himself, after a miracle in John 6, he feeds the 5,000 and people are running to him. And Jesus himself in John 6, he says, you're, you're following me because I gave you bread. If you knew the joy and the hope and real life through the spirit of God that I want to give you, you, you would not be chasing me for bread, for stuff. You would not be missing the, the, the party for the carnival games in the back of the park. Don't miss it, said Jesus. I want to give you my presence and my spirit. And so, Church, our contentment is a statement of our faith in Christ. Our satisfaction is where we declare our trust in Jesus himself. Not a guilt trip, an opportunity. Not a condemnation, an invitation, That when I practice the contentment of Jesus, I know even right now, you can fill my gaps up. You can fill my heart up. I'm trying to stuff this void with other things. Jesus, let me feed on you. That's the beginning of our faith. Contentment and joy flow from this presence of Christ when we know our hunger, when we know that Jesus is the only shepherd who can guide us, and lead us to this place of saying, nothing lacking I. I lack nothing. And from that place, yeah, Jesus, I, I don't want to want anymore. I shall not want. Get me out of this mindset of the next thing, or if that person could only do this, or if my kid would only do this, or if I had, no, Jesus, give me the grass under my feet today and a new perspective that I have everything I need in you as a follower of Christ. Back to Kensington Avenue back to this 22-year-old kid trying to figure out what in the world to do with my life, seeing the joy of these Franciscans serving the most marginalized in all of Philadelphia. I, I got an afternoon with Father Francis, the leader of the Franciscan monks. He said, come in, come in, come in. And he invited me into where all the men, they lived, but nobody, everybody was out working, so it was just he and I in the living room. Do you want tea? Sure, let's have tea. And he lights a candle, and we sit there, and he just tells me, he says, Scott, you got to know your hunger. And you got to know that only Jesus can fill you up. And at had all these questions of the 22-year-old. Yeah, but chastity? Are you kidding me? You know, and he's like, "Nah, we'll all have different needs. But only Christ will fill us up. And it was, it was more than the tea. It was more than the candle. It was seeing him fully alive and content with who Christ is says he was. It was a game changer in my 22-year-old brain. I want to live like that. I want to believe that the grass is not greener on the other side. I don't want to miss the magic of the whole park for the carnival game of what I want in this moment. Lord God, give me a heart of contentment. And may my joy flow from your presence, God, that can sustain me in any situation. This is the journey that we're on. The Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this church and this morning, this moment to remember of who you are and who you say we are. Lord God, we, we resonate with this eightness. We resonate that we would have been left on the field if only by our own qualifications. And yet, you, God, Lord, you have brought us in and, and you're shepherding us even now. We pray that your, your presence would be real right now for people in the room that are very aware of something they're lacking. Lord, it's health, it's financial, it's relational, it's emotional. We don't know. We pray that your spirit, even now, Lord, would be present in their heart and, and that you would fill them up, not with what you'll do next, but what you'll do now. And Lord, God, for others in the room, we pray that this moment would be a reminder that our place of contentment begins now, that in the midst of the situation now, God, you are providing for us and giving us even this morning to celebrate. Let us not miss this morning. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. And all God's people said, amen. For just a moment before we sing, I just want to invite us to just a a moment of meditation. So I'd ask you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're just going to take a few moments here. And if you're comfortable doing it in your own head, I'd invite you to just say these words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when the worries come in, I want you to say it again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And When the doubts come in, I want you to say it again. And may our saying and repeating it to ourselves remind us. Our contentment is available now. We're going to just have a little bit of piano music and just a little bit of time of prayer, and then we'll close in a final song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd.